Well, good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Our sermon text for this morning will be Acts 14, verses 19 through 28. It's the sort of the second half of this chapter. Before we read that together, uh, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that you would speak to us, uh, that you would speak to us now through your word and by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help me to say what is true and good and right. We pray that you would take what is good and true and right and apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we would not only hear, but believe, not only believe, but put our faith in Jesus, trust in him and be changed into his likeness uh, as we gaze upon him in the scriptures. Um, Pour out your spirit on us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 14, beginning with verse 19. This is after Paul and Barnabas have been preaching at Lystra. And we read these words. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word to Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had done. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. If you had one shot to say something to a group of young Christians, what would you say? What if they had recently seen persecution? What if at any moment they might be mocked for their beliefs? What if not believing was a lot easier than believing? And so there was this constant temptation to give up and to go home. What do you think they would need to hear? What would you say? How would you encourage them? Well, we're going to talk at least a little bit about encouragement this morning, uh, the the seriousness of it, the the purpose of it, the the call and the context, the provision and the hope of encouragement. Uh, But that's not my outline, all those uh, little words. What what I want to do is encourage you. I want to exhort you this morning. And uh, if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you'll see an outline listed there uh, with six encouragements from Acts 14. Uh, that, that you might give to a new Christian, uh, that, that we might give to one another as we pursue the Christian life together uh, in a troublesome world, 
and that I'm going to give to you this morning from this text in Acts 14. And those six are, first, get encouragement. Uh, Second, strengthen your soul. Third, keep going. Fourth, expect trouble. Fifth, follow the leader. And sixth, commit yourself to God. Uh, Now, uh, before we jump into those, I want to ask the question, where are we? Right? We're, We're in the book of Acts. And uh, the the book of Acts is the history of Jesus laying the foundation of his church. He does that uh, through uh, through his apostles by the work of his Holy Spirit. Uh, The book of Acts, in this sense, is is unrepeatable. Uh, Jesus has laid the apostolic foundation of his church. Paul says in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And so Acts shows us how Jesus laid that foundation. Uh, It begins with a commission to the apostles to to witness, to bear witness, to uh, testify, give eyewitness testimony to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And then Jesus empowers the church uh, for that work through the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. He pours out the Spirit so that the church is empowered for ministry. The apostles then, uh, as we've seen, they begin to fulfill their uh, commission through preaching and teaching, first in Jerusalem, uh, later in Judea and Samaria. And so we have this outward movement of the gospel from Jerusalem out. Uh, Whereas in the Old Testament, uh, at least in part, you have a sort of a a centripetal movement, right? The movement uh, in toward Jerusalem. Uh, The movement of Acts is centrifugal, right? It, It moves out from the center of Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. And uh, this movement is not just geographic, uh, but it's also uh, ethnic and religious. And so as the gospel went out from Jerusalem geographically, we also see it move from from Jew uh, to unclean Jews, to Samaritans, to God-fearing Gentiles, ultimately to outright pagans. And the, the movement of the gospel shows that this good news is for all peoples of all nations, all backgrounds, all ethnicities. And uh, so, so it's in this context uh, of this foundation-laying movement of the apostles as they establish a, a geographically universal and ethnically diverse church that we see Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. And this is still what, what's sometimes called their first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Syrian Antioch in the beginning of Acts 13. And... Uh, they, they've been to Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch, which is a different Antioch. Uh, they've spoken to everyone from, from uh, Jewish magicians to Roman politicians. Uh, and uh, they've seen some success, and they have been run out of town. Uh, most recently, Paul preached in what seems to be the, a fully Gentile region, a fully pagan town of Lystra. And after some confusion about who Paul and Barnabas were, Paul was stoned and left for dead in verse 19. But he didn't die. Uh, Rather, he got up, and the next day he traveled to the next city and continued to preach. He traveled to Derbe to preach the gospel to that city as well. And once Paul preached the gospel in Derbe and had made many disciples there, uh, so that apparently many people were seeking to follow Jesus, Paul and Barnabas decide that they've gone far enough And they turn around and they go back through each of the towns that they had just come through. So they go back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And as they go, they strengthen the very churches they had just planted. And it seems the second time through, their focus was not as much, at least, on evangelism as it was on encouragement. 
And uh, so my first encouragement to you, uh, whether you're a young Christian or old, uh, is get encouragement. Uh, we don't see this in what Paul says so much. I mean, in everything he says, he's encouraging the church. But we see it uh, a great deal in what Paul does. Uh, here's what's so striking. Uh, by going back through these towns, Paul is actually uh, going away from his starting point. Uh, see, he, he had basically made a circle, right? He started in Antioch over here and uh, went through Cyprus and then came around to another Antioch and Lystra and Derby and all the rest. And so he's almost back at the beginning. So he could just finish the circuit, right, and go right back to Antioch. But he doesn't do that. He turns around and goes the other way and goes all the way back. He, he left Syrian Antioch and had come all the way to, into Lyconia. He could have just gone to Tarsus, uh, which was his hometown, on the way back to his original starting point. Uh, that would have been the shortest route, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes back to each of the towns where he planted churches. And there were two things that, that spoke against him doing this. The first was distance, right? He was almost back at the beginning. But the second was he had been run out of more than one of those towns. He, he had been stoned nearly to death in one of those towns, but now he wanted to go back. Why? Uh, Paul was literally risking his life to encourage these young churches. Now, we, we have in uh, the New Testament, in Acts and in the epistles, a seemingly numberless uh, number, seemingly limitless number of examples of Paul's encouraging churches. Uh, he encourages and exhorts and entreats and comforts and urges. He appeals uh, again and again in his letters. And, and as we see in the letters, the encouragement is not just for baby Christians, as it was for these new uh, churches, but for all people. Uh, and, and not just for people who aren't living up, right, who, who need to be sort of corrected on their path, but even for those who already are on the right track. Paul still gives encouragement to them. Uh, so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that is exhort or encourage, it's the same word, urge you in the Lord Jesus, that you, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. See, Paul encourages them, uh, even though they're doing the right thing. He encourages them. Encouragement is how we grow. It's what keeps us on track as we move forward in the Christian life. Encouragement is what spurs us on to do more and more rather than just the same old, same old. Uh, encouragement uh, is really the role of every believer. And so uh, we also have many commands to encourage. 1 Thessalonians, again, 5.11, encourage one another. And build each other up. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another or encourage, same word, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so these one another passages show us that the, the work of encouragement or exhortation is the work of every member of the church to every other member of the church, right? Encourage one another. And what I, what I want you to see here first is uh, simply the necessity of encouragement, right? You need it if you're going to continue on in the Christian life. We, we will talk about what it is and why that is in just a minute. Whatever, but whatever this encouragement thing is, it's clear from Paul's willingness to risk his life for it and from his tireless work in it throughout his letters and his exhortations for us to pursue it again and again that giving and receiving encouragement is an essential part of the Christian life. 
And so my first encouragement to you is, is simply this, get encouragement, right? You, you need it. Uh, I haven't told you why or even much of what that is, but, but just establish this one simple uh, point, the precedent for why you need encouragement or that you need encouragement. So number two, strengthen your soul. Uh, th- this begins to slide into the why. Uh, so in verse 22, when Paul returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, he, we're told he strengthened the souls of the disciples. And uh, this is the goal of encouragement, to strengthen one another. Uh, Paul encourages elsewhere in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, we're very concerned about strengthening our bodies. Gym memberships and the proliferation of workout videos right, show this kind of thing. Uh, we're very concerned about strengthening our minds, whether through continuing education or through podcasts and apps that promise to make us smarter. We're concerned to strengthen our socioeconomic standing, right, to better our standard of living. But Paul was concerned to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Uh, now, on the one hand, soul uh, can be used simply to refer to the person as a whole, as it sometimes is in Scripture. But on the other hand, it has certain connotations, doesn't it, when we talk about the soul. Paul wants to strengthen them in their inner being. This is what he says in Ephesians 3. He says, God, he prays that God would strengthen believers in their inner person. Now, the, the problem is, in, in, uh, in our culture, we're infatuated with the outer self. Uh, again, Paul says bodily training is of some value. Paul insists to Timothy that things like marriage and food are good things not to be denied or rejected or forbidden, but enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. So we're not talking about overreacting to uh, the cultural around us and rejecting the bodily or the outward and the physical. But our culture right, knows nothing else but the outward. Uh, the outward is everything. We're infatuated with appearance. We're captivated by touch. We're smitten with sound and intoxicated with taste. We are inflamed by the physical. All these things are good. They're gifts to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. But there's more. There is more to life than these things. We have routines by which we care for our bodies and strengthen our bodies. Do you have a routine by which you care for your soul and strengthen your spirit? Is that important to you? Or is outward appearance, is your, is your outward appearance flourishing while your inner person is shriveling? Are you committed not only to the life of the body and the mind, but to the life of the soul as well? If you were to write out a list of your priorities for today, would, would somewhere near the top be, strengthen my soul in Jesus? What we find here is that Paul and Barnabas are strengthening the souls of the disciples. It, it is encouragement from the outside that, that is strengthening them. From Paul to these churches. And I think what, one of the things that means, right, is, is uh, exercising the soul is not quite the same as exercising the body. Um, exercising the body you might do on your own. And it's true that reading your Bible and meditating on Scripture and journaling and praying, and these can be solitary disciplines, but when Scripture speaks of us being strengthened, it's always this one another ministry, the ministry of one believer to another. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 puts it like this. It says, let us, plural, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. See, we must strengthen one another through encouragement and stirring up the life of God within. Now, I know our, or maybe I'll just say my number one excuse for not doing this is time. Right? We, we just don't have enough time to meet with other believers. Uh, but again, th this is really a matter of priorities, isn't it? Uh, we, we make time for what is important to us. Now, to be honest, I hate hearing that. I hate hearing that because I'm so bad at time management. And if you were to look at my time and look at my schedule, you would say, man, your priorities are a mess. Um, but it's true, right? We make time for what is important. And if strengthening your soul is important, you will make time both for private disciplines and for the fellowship of the body. And this means not just Sunday morning. It does mean Sunday morning, gathering with God's people as we are right now. But it means getting to know others in the body. It means taking the time to meet with them, being willing to be vulnerable with them, allowing them to get to know you, your, your inner person. That might be, mean a small group. It might be one-on-one, -on -one, right? Uh, aside from assembling on the first day of the week, no, nothing else specific is prescribed in Scripture except that we do life together, whatever that looks like. And so what do we need to do? We need to get encouragement. Why? To strengthen our souls, to be strengthened in our inner man, as Scripture says. Encouragement number three, keep going. Keep going. This is really the call or the, the content of encouragement. This is what we say to one another when we get together. Keep going. Don't give up. And we may say it a million different ways, but there's always this simple call in the background to keep living by faith. Keep going. Don't give up. Uh, what we're told in verse 22 is Paul encouraged them to continue in the faith. It's the third time in Acts that this language has been used. Acts 11, uh, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God at Antioch, he was glad and exhorted them all, encouraged them, to remain faithful, to continue, remain with the Lord with steadfast purpose. Again, in, in Pisidian Antioch, in Acts 13, after meeting, the meeting of the synagogue had ended, many people followed both Paul and Barnabas out the door uh, and were told that as they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. Again, keep going. Don't give up. And so the content of encouragement is, is this. Keep going. Continue with the Lord. Continue in the grace of God. Continue in the faith. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep following. Don't give up. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get distracted. Don't get lured away. The gospel is your life. Jesus, sin-bearing, resurrecting, receiving the kingdom, ruling at the right hand of God, someday to return work, that is your life. He has done everything to put the world right, to defeat sin and death, to bring life, to reestablish God's order of things. Keep your eye on Him. Don't lose focus. Don't be distracted. And, and make no mistake, right, that some people don't continue. Uh, I, I'm not seeking to undermine our belief in the perseverance of the saints, but what I'm saying is simply this. There are many churchgoers who stop being churchgoers. Right? There, there are many who profess the faith who end up denying it. And so keep going. Don't give up. Encouragement, number one, get encouragement. Number two, strengthen your soul. Number three, keep going. Number four, expect trouble. Why do we need encouragement? 
Why do we need someone to tell us to keep going? Well, the answer is there is a continual temptation to stop and to turn back and to give up. Why is that temptation there? Well, uh, why are we tempted to give up? There are lots of reasons, I guess. Sometimes success tempts us, doesn't it? Uh, The goodness of life or the hope of life becoming good diverts our eyes from Jesus to the world that Jesus made. We lose our focus. The cares of this world choke out fledgling faith, as Jesus talks about in one of his parables. And yet there's another biggie, another big source of of temptation. The delights of the world may choke out our faith, but the hot sun of trials might wither them away to nothing. And this is what Paul picks up on here in verse 22. He encourages the disciples to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Aside from the delights of this world, nothing causes us to lose focus more than the troubles of this world. Why would Paul pick up on this one? Well, uh, for one, remember, uh, Paul has been run out of multiple towns for preaching the gospel in probably the last few weeks of his life. In one, he had been stoned nearly to death. His experience on this first missionary journey was one of tribulation and trial. And it's probable that the, that the book of Galatians was actually written to some of these very churches, many of which were in the province of Galatia. And if that's true, then we know of another trial that Paul experienced at this time. Because in Galatians 4, Paul says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. And so Paul was experiencing some kind of bodily ailment, uh, some sickness or injury. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that there was something wrong. And the point is, Paul not only experienced persecution during his first missionary journey, but he also experienced physical problems as well. So he experienced troubles without and troubles within. Paul knew by experience that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Now that word must is a must of sort of divine necessity, right? The the sufferings are not an entrance requirement. It's not that if if you want to get into heaven, you have to, you know, check off the list. Okay, I've suffered enough now. Now I can make it into heaven. That's not what Paul means when he says, uh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We don't earn our way into heaven through trials. Uh, But they must happen because God has planned for them to happen. That's what the word must there means. It's used tons of places in scripture. I'll give you just one example. Luke 9, 22, Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things. Why? What is that? What is the necessity there? What is the must? It's because of the plan of God. And here's the point. In God's plan, Christians will suffer before fully entering the kingdom. Uh, You don't have to understand that plan. Uh, I don't expect you to like that plan, Uh, but it's part of God's plan for his people. And by the kingdom, Paul and Barnabas mean the resurrection, the restoration of all things, when God's order will be restored to what it was meant to be. Until that time, we undergo trials. Hebrews calls it uh, God's discipline, meaning his fatherly discipline for us, sanctifying us through our suffering. Like gold is purified through fire, so our faith, as was uh, prayed this morning, is uh, our faith is sanctified through our trials. 
And so uh, to the Thessalonians, Paul says at one point, he sent Timothy to them to establish and exhort, encourage, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and, you, and just as you know. And so you can understand why encouragement is so necessary. The Christian life is full of suffering, full of troubles and trials. Uh, sometimes Christians believe that if you become a Christian, that you'll stop suffering, right? That if you become a Christian, all your troubles go away. And if you're suffering, well, it's, it's because you don't have enough faith. But that is not what Paul says at all. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so we must say to young Christians, look, expect trouble. It will come. It, it may be large, it may be small, but it will be a reality. Trials will come. Temptations will come. Sickness will come. Persecution will come. And that doesn't mean God's promises have failed. That doesn't mean that God is absent. That doesn't mean your faith is weak. Listen to the words of Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus, in, in, Jesus' encouragement to us in John 16 is not, if you follow him, your life will be trouble-free. Jesus' encouragement is, you will have trouble. But Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has overcome. Jesus has passed through the valley of the shadow of death and come safely to the other side in his resurrection from the dead. And this is the promise for us when we look to him and trust in him. We have the hope of the resurrection from the dead as well, the entrance into the glories of the new creation, a creation without sin and sickness and disease and death. And as Christ has been raised, so we will be raised on that day. Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So troubles now do not undermine our faith, but they are actually a precursor to the life to come. The cross comes before the crown. Death before resurrection, suffering before glory. And so get encouragement. Strengthen your soul as you gather with other uh, of God's people. Keep going. And yet expect trouble along the way. Encouragement number five, follow the leader. Uh, it's highly significant, I think, in the book of Acts, that Paul here appoints elders in verse 23, the very next verse. Uh, some would say that this was simply Paul's pragmatic provision for the moment, rather than a pattern set down for us, for us to follow. But as we look through the book of Acts, we actually see a transition of leadership uh, from the apostles to the elders. In Acts 1, the 12th apostle is appointed to replace Judas. In Acts 6, other church leaders begin to be appointed. In Acts 12, uh, the apostle James is martyred but not replaced. Why? Because the apostolic leadership was just for a time only. Their, their role is being completed. They don't need to keep going. In Acts 14 here then, Paul appoints elders in every church. And we'll see those same elders, or, or also elders in Acts 15, in the next chapter, elders gather alongside the apostles, deliberating at the Council of Jerusalem. In Acts 20, Paul will gather the elders together for his farewell address, uh, committing the church into their hands. And so what we see is, is not this pragmatic provision for the moment, but a transition of leadership from the extraordinary, unique work of the apostles to the ordinary, ongoing work of the elders. 
And you see this played out in the epistles as well, right, as you looked at Paul's letters and even 1 Peter. Uh, but what, what I want you to grab hold of here is this. Uh, Paul is seeking to ground these young churches. He wants them to, ver to persevere, to keep going, to not give up despite their troubles. And so he strengthens them and encourage them, encourages them, and he warns them of trials and tribulations. And one of the provisions that he makes for them is the appointment of elders. We're not told anything else here except that he appoints elders in every church. Uh, but it's clear as you look at other passages, Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 3, and so on, that elders play a role in strengthening and establishing and equipping the church. The writer of Hebrews says, submit to your leaders because they keep watch over your souls. That's the very thing. Paul wants to strengthen the souls of these churches. So a Christian not submitting to the leadership in the church functionally is a sheep without a shepherd. He or she is, is not one, has no one keeping watch over their soul, as Hebrews 13 talks about. And so Peter exhorts the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd them. Keep watch over them. If you're a Christian and, and are, are not a part of a church, if you haven't joined yourself to a gospel preaching church, thereby placing yourself under the care of specific elders, specific shepherds of the sheep, uh, you, you are functionally a sheep without a shepherd. If you respond, oh no, Jesus is my shepherd. Uh, well, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, appoints elders as overseers of his flock, Acts 20. And through, though Jesus is the chief shepherd, according to 1 Peter 5, he calls elders to shepherd his flock. And so don't be more spiritual than Jesus, right? Yes, Jesus is your shepherd. That's good. How does he shepherd you? Through local shepherds. He shepherds his sheep through under-shepherds. And given the context here of Paul establishing the, the young church, the implication is churches persevere and are established as they are shepherded by local leaders. And what does this mean for you? Well, it, it means at least two things, right? On the one hand, join a church if you're not a part of a church. Join some church. It doesn't have to be this church. Join a gospel-preaching church wherever it might be found. Here's the second thing, though. It means pray for your leaders. <laughs> pray for me. <laughs> Uh, pray for David and Scott, right? Pray for the existing elders in this church. Pray for our elder nominees as we go through elder training together, which uh, as some of you know, if you've been around, we're doing that uh, presently, slowly, <laughs> but, but we're going through that. Uh, pray that Jesus would shepherd his church uh, by his Holy Spirit uh, through his under shepherds, that through, uh, through those elders, Jesus would care for his church. And so encouragement number one, get encouragement Number two, strengthen your soul. Number three, keep going. Number four, expect trouble. Number five, follow the leader. And encouragement number six, commit yourself to God. Uh, with all this talk of encouragement to keep going in the face of troubles under the care of elders, you might begin to think it's all up to us, uh, that, that perseverance is on your shoulders. Of course, that's not the case at all. The final words of verse 23 are with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. To commit is to entrust, right? It, it's to commit uh, is to take something of value and to entrust it into another person's hands. And uh, this is what happens in, in many of uh, Jesus' parables. You may know some of the parables where, where the master entrusts his property to stewards. This is what happened at the cross when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is what Paul charges Timothy to do with the gospel, to entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach it to others. 
This is what Peter encourages those who suffer to do. First uh, Peter 4, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right, so, the, so the content of exhortation is to keep going, don't give up, persevere. But our hope of that is not in ourselves. Paul is not entrusting their souls into their hands when he tells them to continue in the faith. That is, we, we encourage people to keep going, to not give up, but we don't think that their ability to do that is found in themselves. We don't put our hope of persevering in human strength. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Lord Jesus will sustain you to the end. Paul encourages the Philippians, uh, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So God does call us to persevere, but we persevere only because he works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. We persevere because God preserves our faith. And so don't think that your perseverance is in your hands, lest you despair, realizing that how little your strength is, or you get cocky and proud and so stumble and fall. Entrust your soul to God. I mean, isn't that what the gospel is all about? Uh, that, that we're sinners, that we're damned to hell, facing judgment and wrath eternally, but God, out of his mere good pleasure, sent his son to bear sin, to suffer in our place, to taste hell and judgment and wrath for us, that we might find forgiveness in life in him. Entrust your soul to Jesus. He and he alone is the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we give you praise as the chief shepherd, as the overseer of every soul. And, uh, and we pray that you would help us to look to you, to entrust ourselves to you, to lay our lives uh, in your hands, to know that we are in your hands, that as our shepherd, you, you have hold of us and you won't let us go and you'll be with us to the end. Help us to remember that, to find strength in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.